If you're a guest with us this morning, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. It's a uh, privilege to open God's word with you, eager to do so. If you're a guest and you're just checking us out, man, I hope somebody turns and introduces themselves to you. That's my charge to, you, to the regular attenders, members here. Make sure you say hi to somebody you don't know before you get out of the building this morning. Let's welcome each other in, all right? Everybody's invited to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2. We started this series a couple weeks ago, making our way into Deuteronomy. This morning, we're in a passage that will remind us of why so many people stay away from the Old Testament. Yeah, this morning's passage is full of strange names and faraway places for which we have little frame of reference, but with just a bit of digging, we'll be able to bridge from the ancient author's message to a modern application. That's our goal. And so to make this morning's passage a little more accessible, let's begin with a quick review of Israel's family tree. The pertinent names and nations are on the screen. Terah was the patriarch of the family, and he had three boys, Haran, Nahor, and Abraham. Together, they all lived in a place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans, which was located at the northern end of the Persian Gulf, if you want to Google it later today, the northern end of the Persian Gulf, or the southern end of what is today modern Iraq. That's where Terah lived with these three boys. There isn't enough uh, space on the screen to detail the entirety of the family. There isn't enough time to trace all the marriages and their dysfunction. Uh, So I've limited, yeah, if uh, if you feel your family's dysfunctional, it's got nothing on Tara's family. So I've limited the tree to illustrate only those nations that are mentioned in today's passage. If you're familiar with the biblical history, you'll remember that Haran's son Lot left Ur with his uncle Abraham. So they leave the city of Ur, they travel north uh, to the promised land. Uh, Lot, once they get to the promised land, he settles in the infamous city of Sodom. God later saves him out of Sodom before raining fire down on the city. He makes his way into the mountains. There he he gives birth. Uh, His daughters give birth to two boys one named Moab, one named Ben-Amini. Now, if you know anything about the dysfunction, I see some smiling. Perhaps you know the uh, grotesque nature of the relationship. Um, Moab and Ben-Amini are, are the sons uh, of an incestuous relationship. Lot's daughters sleep with Lot. And Moab and Ben-Amini are born. Out of Moab and Ben-Amini come the, the nations, the the peoples of Moab and the Ammonites. On the other side of the family tree is Abraham. He had Isaac. Isaac had twin boys named Jacob and Esau who fought basically a lifelong battle uh, for the blessing of their dad, Isaac. Uh, they, are alienate, they alienate each other in that process. Uh, Isaac has twin boys, Jacob, Esau, right? And then they go on to be the patriarchs of the Israelites and the Edomites, and the Edomites settle in a place called Seir that figures prominently in today's passage. All right, we need to remember Moabites, Ammonites, Israelites, Edomites, all right? That's the family tree. Here's the geography. This on the screen is the map I've been making my way through over the last couple weeks. On the map, you'll see the lands occupied by the Edomites, 
This is the hill country of Seir. You're going to hear about that in today's passage. Edom, the Edomites, all right, uh, the descendants of Esau, and then the Moabites and the Ammonites, all right? The promised land is over here. So these are the three nations. These three kingdoms figure prominently, and God prohibits the Israelites from settling in these lands. Why? Well, because we learn in today's passage, he has particular designs for who would live there. Go ahead and leave it up there, Matt. He had particular designs for who would live there. He had given the land, we'll learn, to Esau, Moab, and Ammon. Before I begin reading, let me, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 2. We'll leave the map up there. Listen to as I read, and, and then you can follow along if you want, but you'll be able to trace the route and the warnings. So just as a quick reminder, they're in Egypt as slaves. Moses walks them out under God's leadership. They cross the Red Sea and they head down the Sinai Peninsula. This trip is relatively short and they spend a relatively short amount of time at Sinai, what's called Horeb in the book of Deuteronomy. They're only at Horeb about a year. They receive the Ten Commandments. They're told to head north to, towards Kadesh Barnera. This trip only takes 11 days. So from the Exodus to Kadesh Barnea, let's put it at, you know, 11 months. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 13 months, 14 months, right in that period. It, it's not long that they're there. Last week, we, we read about how they sent spies in. The black lines are the spies that go into Cana. They come back and they report, we can't do this. Ten of the twelve say, we can't do this. We, we can't go into the promised land. And so the Israelites respond with doubt and fear and then rebellion. And they said, no, we won't go into the promised land. And God says, oh, if you'll not be obedient, you're headed back into the wilderness. And at that point, they say, oh, if, if the option is either the fight the, the giants in the promised land or go into the wilderness, oh, okay, we'll go into the promised land. But God's already told them no. He's already sent them back into the wilderness. The dotted red line represents their failed attempt when they refused for a second time to do as God told them. They go, <clears throat> the fighting men strap on their swords and shields. They go into the promised land and they get, quote, this is the NIV, beat down by the Amorites, not the Ammonites. And so they, with their tail between their leg, legs, they, they come out, and they're, now they're going to obey. They've got no really option. They weren't uh, blessed by God when they tried to invade because they'd been rebellious. Now they're going to finally obey. They're going to head into the wilderness. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 1, they're a defeated group. And reluctantly, they're headed into the wilderness. Leave that map up there, and I'll point some stuff out as we go along. Then we turned back and set out toward the wilderness along the route to the Red Sea as the Lord had directed me. For a long time, we made our way around the hill country of Seir. So this is the hill country of Seir. That's where Esau's descendants settled, the Edomites. Then the Lord said to me, you've made your way around the hill country long enough. Now turn north, give the people these orders. You're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. They'll be afraid of you, but be very careful, do not provoke them to war, for I'll not give you any of their land, not even enough to put your foot on. I have given Esau the country, the hill country of Seir, uh, as his own. So they wander around in the hill country of Seir. They're told to head north. As on Geber is mentioned here in a minute, they head north towards Moab. Uh, Zer the valley of Zerid is going to be mentioned. 
I have given Esau the hill country of Seir as his own. You're to pay them silver for the food you eat, water you drink there. Don't take anything from them. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have not lacked anything. So we went on past our relatives, right? It's all in the family tree, the descendants of Esau who live in Seir. We turned from the Arabah road, which comes up from Elath and Ezan Geber and traveled along the desert road headed to Moab. So they're headed north towards Moab. Then the Lord said to me, don't harass the Moabites or provoke them to war for I'll not give you any part of their land. Why? I've given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. And then there's this long parenthesis. And it, and it has a flavor of um, historic reflection to it. The Emites used to live there. A people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. This will matter in a minute. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Raphaites. Raphites. But the Moabites called them Emites. I hope you're tracking. <laughs> Horites used to live in Seir, but the descendants of Esau drove them out. They destroyed the Horites from before them and settled in, the pl in that place, just as Israel, just, just as Israel did in the land the Lord God gave them as their possession. So the Edomites settled in the land of Seir and drove out the Horites. The Moabites settled in the land, and they drove out the people that had been there formerly as well. And historically, parenthetically, he looks back and he says, just as Israel ultimately settled in their promised land, the, the descendants of Esau and Moab settled in their land as well. And the Lord said, now get up and cross the Zered Valley. The Zered River's on the screen. So we cross the valley. Verse 14, 38 years passed from the time of Kadesh Barnea to crossing the Zered Valley. 38 years in this area. Finally, they're going to cross over, head up, and they're going to invade the promised land up here. 38 years passed from the time we left Kadesh Barnea till we crossed the Zered Valley, but then the, by then the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp. As the Lord had sworn to them, the Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now, when the last of these fighting men among the people had died, the Lord said to me, today you're to pass by the region of Moab at Ar. When you come to the Ammonites, don't harass or provoke them to war, for I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. Why? Because I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. And then there's this another parenthesis, and it's a historic reflection of God's allotment of land to nations. They too, that too was considered the land of the Raphites, who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zanzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites and drove them out and settled them in their place. The Lord destroyed the so-called Zanzamites, who were as tall as the Anakites before the Ammonites. I'll make a point, I promise. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. And as for the Av Avites who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaphtarites coming out from Kaphtar destroyed them and settled in their place. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. 
Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God based on what Paul wrote to Timothy, who pastored the church at Ephesus. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, all of it. All of it's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be fully equipped. This is what's on my plate today. How might God equip us from his God-breathed word? Anytime we approach a biblical passage, especially one like this, with so many strange names and foreign geographies, we need to first ask, what was God's message from ancient author to ancient audience? What was God's message to this ancient people through these ancient authors in that particular ancient context? And then we work to build a bridge to modern application. Remember, the Bible wasn't written to us. It was written for us, arguably, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to a people separated from us clearly. Different time, space, geography, nations, people groups. But it was written for us, and if we work hard, we can bridge to a modern application this morning. Here's some of what I believe the ancients would have gleaned from this morning's passage. Namely, God is Lord of all nations and lands. We prayed this morning pre-service for the Ukrainians and the Russians and all nations getting sucked in to that, um, that conflict. And we prayed for the church in the Ukraine and the believers in Russia as well, that the church would play the role it's supposed to play as a light to the peoples, a priest in their context, a priesthood, right, of all believers and that the gospel would have an opportunity in that conflictual situation and that peace would be the ultimate outcome. Why? Because God is Lord of all nations and all geographies. Several times in this morning's passage, the Lord indicates that he had selected certain lands for certain people groups. For example, Moses says in verse, verses 4 and 5, you're about to pass through the territory of your relatives, the descendants of Esau who live in Syria, they're going to be afraid of you. Be careful. Don't provoke them to war. I'm not giving you their land. I gave it to the descendants of Esau. So what's the takeaway here? Folks, the takeaway, in part at least, must be that Israel was given a specific land, but they're not the only nation to whom God had given a specific land. Esau's descendants, the Edomites, have been given a land. And the Moabites too, verse 9, the Lord said to me, don't harass the Moabites, don't provoke them to war. I'm not giving you any part of their land. Why? I gave it, I've given R to the descendants of Lot. So again, Israel is being given a specific land, but it's not just Israel. It's the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites. Verse 19, when you come to the, to the Ammonites, don't harass them, don't provoke them to war. I'm not going to give you possession of any land belonging to them. I've given it as a possession to the descendants of Lot. So again, it's not just Israel who's being given a land. God is God of over all nations and all geographies. And in each case, Moses is clear that God has even fought for those nations and conquered the people groups there in order to settle the peoples that he wanted in particular geographies. Verse 21, the Zamzanites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled them in their place. The Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites. God's clearly communicating that he is Lord. 
Now, there are two large parenthetical comments in today's passage. And in both sections, there's this historic look back over what God has done for Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites. And there are people groups named whom God went before clearing these folks out for these particular people groups. And in each case, the lineage of the peoples in that land is named. They're Rephites. I don't know if I'm saying it. Rephites. R-A-P-H-A-I-T-E-S. And the description of them is that they were like the Anakites. Folks, it was the Anakites who when the, when the um, spies were sent in the land and they came back out, 10 of them said, we can't do this. Why can't we do this? Two said we could. The 10 said, because the Anakites are in the land. This strikes me as intensely fascinating that the Edomites and the Moabites and the Ammonites overcame the Anakites and their descendants when Israel did not. Does anybody else find that fascinating? God's people are being called into the land that he wants to give them for his particular purpose. They balk, wander 38 years in the wilderness, only to hear a reminder parenthetically in chapter 2, you don't get Esau's land, you don't get Moab's land, you don't get Benami's land, because I've sent particular peoples in those lands. Oh, and God settled them there, overcoming the very people you were afraid of. These names are lost on us, Zamzamites, right? Horites. They're lost on us. They would not have been lost on the second generation of Israelites. The Edomites, Moabites, and Ammonites were given victory over the Anakites, the, the descendants of the Rephaites. They were giants of the land who the Israelites found terrifying, and they decided God can't do this. He's not able. Why does all this matter? It matters for several reasons. It matters because it means that God doesn't play favorites. More to the point, he hadn't simply selected Israel for special favor and left out all other nations. We saw this clearly in our study of the book of Revelation, chapter 7. This was in the fall. As we get to chapter 7, we see people from every nation, tribe every, every, every nation, tribe, and language group before the throne of God, worshiping. Now, God certainly selected Israel for special service, but not simply, and there was entailed in that special favor for sure, but it's not that God is playing favorites. God is God. He's Lord over all the nations of the earth. God doesn't play favorites. This is good news because it means everybody is invited in. Everybody can be included. Here we see that God actually conquered for the descendants of Esau and the incestuous offspring of Lot. You can't make this stuff up. Benami, Moab, the incestuous offspring of Lot, God's still caring for them, the Moabites and Ammonites, and defeating the Anakites, the people that Israel was afraid of. This also matters because it means the promised land didn't belong to Israel, at least not in the way that Americans most often think of ownership. God entrusted land 
to Edom, Moab, and Ammon, and Israel. But all, all land belongs to God. Which is why he can give it a, as a gift to anybody he sees fit. A better way to think of the promised land would probably be a land grant. We think of possession as this is mine and you can't have it. This is mine, I possess it, and if you want to borrow it from me, you can. Well, that's not what we see in the text. We see God, who is the giver of every good gift, entrusting to nations particular geographies, charging them to steward it well, which means that we'll all give an account. This matters that God is Lord over all nations and geographies. It matters because when he entrusts particular nations, they must give an account for how they utilize their resources. God in his goodness settled Israel in the land to be priests in a particular geography so that his presence could settle there in the promised land. They would build the temple. His presence would physically condescend on the temple. He had selected them out of all the nations to serve this purpose. It's not that he had rejected all nations. He clearly has a plan for all nations. Read Revelation 7. Read Deuteronomy chapter 2. He clearly loves all peoples. He settled them in lands, gave them an inheritance, entrusted them. He wouldn't let Israel touch it. You're going to pass through. Do not provoke them to war. So Israel wasn't, interestingly enough, selected to be a nation of priests because they were particularly righteous. In fact, we're told that the case is just the opposite. They were selected apart from anything they had done or would do. This should sound vaguely familiar that, to those who have been in the church for a while. Israel was selected to be God's chosen people, a priesthood among all nations, apart from anything they had done. It was not because of their righteousness, clearly. And they wander for 38 years in the wilderness and he doesn't give up on them. It's despite their unrighteousness, this should bring us lots of hope. The exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the coming conquest of the promised land are all with an eye toward God making a place on earth where he can dwell among humanity. Remember, God's first place dwelling among people was the Garden of Eden. It's called sacred space, and there's a theology of sacred space that runs from Genesis to the book of Revelation. The first place was Eden. Of course, sin spoiled that, and Adam and Eve are ushered out of the garden. The same is true with Israel. God, in his great patience, sees them through the wilderness years, settles them in Israel. The temple's built. The Spirit of God condescends. He's there among his people. They serve him through the sacrificial system, but they sin. They forfeit their opportunity to serve as priests. They forfeit the land. He ushers them out. It's the Garden of Eden repeated. So the provision of the promised land to Israel was not primarily about Israel. God's entrusting land to them. It was primarily about God's presence on earth, which means for Israel, having the land was never meant to be an independent benefit. Rather, it's only a meaningful experience for them as they served Yahweh faithfully. And the same is true for us. Let me say that again. 
God entrusts the land to them. It's offered to them. They're to serve as a priests, serve as priests of God Most High in the land. The sacrificial system cleanses the land, cleanses the temple, so that God's presence can physically dwell among them. When their sin is heaped up, he ushers them out of the land. Having the land was never meant to be an independent benefit. It's not something that he's given to them for their sakes primarily. Rather, it was only meaningful for them when they serve Yahweh with it. And the same is true for us. Our lives have been graciously given to us. We've been entrusted with the breaths we are taking this morning. But there's no meaning in our lives apart from living as a priest to God Most High, the creator of all things, who has entrusted us with the life we have. To live independent of that, there's no meaning. It's futile. It's vain. The, the futility and the vanity that are so common in 21st century America, particularly in the suburban life, is, when we, is found when we make life about the gifts rather than the giver. We turn and worship the gifts and bow to them as idols rather than using them, our breath, our vocal cords. I prayed this morning pre-service for those who would lead us in singing, our congregational preaching. At the beginning of my prayer, I I confess that almost every Sunday I I wrestle with gift envy. I want to be a vocalist. I want to be an instrumentalist. But it's God who gives gifts. He, He entrusts us And the only real meaning in life is found when we use the gifts and make the most of the gifts we've been given to bring him glory, to serve him and enjoy his presence. All right, ancient author, ancient audience. God is Lord over all nations and geographies, lands. Across the bridge to modern application, here's my best effort. God is Lord over all peoples and possessions. Matt opened this morning with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything in it. This means that we're not simply collectively the Lord's, the church, the people of God, Israel. He's not only dealing with us as nations, he's dealing with us individually as well. And everything we possess is his. He owns it all. The American notion of ownership often sidetracks God's people from really enjoying the gifts we've been given. Oftentimes, well, if we make life about the gifts we've been given and are possessing them, they crush us under their weight. But if we make life about the creator and the gifts he's, he's enjoying the gifts he's given us, we make life about the creator, then we walk under the easy yoke and the light burden of Christ, Matthew chapter 11. One of the ways that we can know whether or not we're walking under the easy yoke of stewardship, being, utilizing what we've been entrusted with for God's glory, or whether we're being crushed under the heavy yoke, the sinful burden of possession, where my kids are my kids, that's crushing. If my kids are my kids, that's not going to go well. For me. But if, if my kids are entrusted to me, as gifts from God, and they ultimately have to give an account to the Lord, and and I'm called to do my best, 
Under his strength and power, that's a whole other matter. That's the easy yoke. That's the light burden. But if, they're actually, if my marriage is my marriage or our marriage, that ain't going to go well. In fact, there have been seasons when it hasn't gone well. Where we did eight, 12 months of counseling. When, when I was, or we were, making the marriage about us instead of about our Creator. That's a crushing burden. If I'm trying to get from Sherry all my needs met, that ain't going to go well. There's no possible way. In fact, I'll share. This is probably too much vulnerability. Sherry, she's rolling her eyes right now. <laughs> Sherry said to me once, you are a black hole of unmet needs. I can't possibly meet all those needs. Oh, why are the men frowning and the women laughing? <laughs> it's true, though. I want the easy yoke and the light burden of receiving the gift of marriage, but looking to my Creator to care for me. And I want to know the easy yoke and the light burden of cheering her on in her faith to love and good deeds. I don't want the crushing yoke of trying to manage, manipulate, or control her to get what I want. Money, careers, all those good gifts. And just as God didn't play favorites with Israel, he doesn't play favorites with individuals. He loves all humanity. He's entrusted everyone to some extent with wealth, abilities, knowledge, opportunity, and we will all give an account to our Creator for how we utilize the things with which we have been entrusted. This means that the possessions we have received are not ours, at least not in the way that America thinks of possession, but rather we have received from our Father the things that we were enjoying. Every good gift comes down from God. Every good gift. So here's my question for us. How are we doing at stewarding all that God has entrusted to us? All week long, Pastor John Vandervelde's been saying that this passage strikes him as potentially the most sad passage in all of Scripture. As the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, and they didn't have to, he has said repeatedly this week that for him it's the saddest commentary in all the Bible that the first generation missed out on knowing God's abundant blessing. Now, God provided for them. It's stated very clearly. Even in disciplining the first generation, he provides for them in the wilderness. They experience, and God's good to us like that as well. Even when we're under the Lord's discipline, we can sense the Lord's care for us. And so they missed out on what God had for them because of their doubt. They didn't think that they could conquer the giants in the land, their fear, their rebellion as a result of their emotional response to the report of the spies, and they head back into the wilderness. Note, men described as fighting men, men who were trained, ready for battle, turned around and led into the desert simply to wait until they died. It is a sad commentary, and it's nothing I want to experience. They didn't get to exercise their gifts. They didn't get to try what they had trained for. They didn't get to experience the victories of God in the promised land. No, because of the rebellion, they're led into the wilderness to twiddle their thumbs as fighting men. Verse 14, 
38 years passed. From the time we left Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the Zared Valley, by then the entire generation of fighting men had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. You're not going into the promised land because you're doubt and fear and rebellion. The Lord's hand was against them until he had completely eliminated them from the camp. Now in God's mercy, generation two gets to go in. In fact, Moses records these words. He, he offers these stories to encourage the second generation. And they're preserved for us this morning for the same purpose. He is Lord over all peoples and possessions. Do not spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness. Don't waste your gifts. Don't waste your talents. Don't waste your time. Find the courage of knowing God loves you and cares for you and step out in faith and experience the, the conquering, the victory. How are we doing stewarding what God has entrusted to us? I opened this morning by reviewing the portion of Abraham's family. It's on the screen there. Lot escapes. Here's the good news. Lot escapes from Sodom, and he's up in the mountains. His wife, right, she turns to look back. It's a very complex story. She turns to a pillar of salt. She dies right there. So it's only Lot and his two daughters that are in the mountains. I'm assuming because of the cultural influence on that family, his two daughters decide to sleep with him. They get him drunk, dad. Moab and ben are the result of that incestuous relationship. Folks, here's the gospel. God did not give up on the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Edomites or the Israelites despite the sin in the family. Jacob and Esau fought from before the time of their birth. Friction. Jacob was described as a deceiver and he tricks Esau out of his birthright as firstborn. And they have to work through that whole family. This, this leaves out uh, Ishmael's not even there, right? He was born before Isaac. Folks, our family trees cannot hold a candle to the dysfunction that's represented up on the screen. So whatever excuse we may be prone to using that would keep us from taking risks of faith, that family takes those, our dysfunction off the table. There's no excuse God is good. He's eager to care for us. You're never going to let me down, we sing, with great boldness and courage. You turn graves into gardens. Let's not just parrot that. Let's act on it Monday through Saturday. Let's step out. Let's believe that God's greater than all our sin. Amen? What risks? How are we handling the gifts we've been given? You may ask yourselves, well, I do have doubt and fear. How do I find the, the encouragement to fight the good fight? Well, it's on the screen, verse 7. The Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He's watched over your journey through this vast wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. Now, I get it. There are things that the Israelites would have preferred to avoid in the wilderness. God in his sovereignty decided they'd go through it. But we, either, we will either affirm the truth of these verses or we will not affirm them. 
And what we do with the truth of these verses will make all the difference in our lives. You'll either say to yourself that uh, God is greater than all the sin in my life and he has carried me through the wilderness that I'm in and my family's been in, that God is good and he's providing for me in the chaos of this desert, or God's not good and I will waffle in doubt and fear and that will lead to rebellion. So if you want to act in courage, we must get in touch with the love of God, Romans chapter 2. It's, it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. We sing about it. We're proclaiming it. Here's the gospel that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before you were even born, he knew that you would be born in sin, in my mother's womb, Psalm 51. David said, I was conceived sinfully. Christ was sent to care for us so that our graveyard could be turned to gardens. Folks, there are some risks to be taken by us. There's some faithfulness. That's the spiritual word. There's some faith to be acted upon by this community, individually and collectively. We will either spend 38 years wandering in the wilderness, and God will provide for us. Manna will drop from heaven. He'll see us through it. He'll carry us along. And maybe our kids will experience it. Or we will step to the plate as fighting men and women, and we will beat down the obstacles that are in our way. By God, thank you. By God's grace and peace and, and power. And don't hear from this pulpit that you need to step out in faith in order to secure your salvation. That's not what's being preached. Israel was selected apart from anything they had done and despite all they had done. And according to Ephesians 2, you were selected the same way. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, this having nothing to do with you so that no one can boast. I'm not saying step out in faith so that you secure your salvation. I'm saying step out in faith so you enjoy your salvation, so you don't have to endure the wilderness any longer. Amen? Amen. All right, I'll, I'll pray and we'll respond in song. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us and to Israel and to Edom and to Moab and to Ammon. We don't want to wander. We want to step out in boldness and in faith. We want to know your blessings. We want to experience your goodness we don't want to live with gift envy watching somebody else step out. Father, we want to, we want to act on the gifts you've, been given, uh, you've given to us, we want all that we've been entrusted to. We want to take some risks. We want to know the easy yoke and the light burden of living fearless, knowing you got our back. In Jesus' name, amen.